Great. Well, everybody is uh, taking their seat and moving in. Let's uh, just review uh, announcements. Just a reminder that next week we have our conference on Israel. There is a sign-up page on the WestHoustonBibleChurch.org website. That just gives us an idea of how many people uh, will possibly show up. In other words, the five people that have registered so far will multiply that by a factor of about 10 or 12, and then we'll have an accurate number because that's pretty much how it works out around here. So, uh, But there's been a lot of promotion. It'll be interesting to see who shows up because there's uh, at least two or three different uh, Jewish groups that have, been, have, have put the word out, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what the response is on that side. Also, um, we still need some volunteers to help uh, with with the food. I know that Roberta was going to help out, and that because of the uh, death of her brother-in-law this this last weekend, they have to they'll be going to the memorial service that weekend. So I know that uh, when I spoke with uh, Pam Richards this afternoon, this afternoon, there's still a need for some uh, some more people to help, as well as to bring uh, bring some food, primarily for Saturday morning and again on on Sunday night. So aside from that, I think everything is pretty much in order. And then a prayer for October the 14th to 15th for the men's camp out that um, there won't be any rain. We have to start praying now, okay? I mean that. I'm serious about that. We, we, it seemed like the last two or three years we've been rained out several times for both the picnic and the camp, camp out. So, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Uh, get, make sure you are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for all of your many blessings in our life, especially the blessing of salvation, freely given at no, no cost to us, though it cost you the death of your Son. Father, we're thankful that he paid the penalty in our place, and help us to understand all of the implications and ramifications of that, and all of the blessings and assets that you have provided for us in our spiritual life. Now, Father, tonight we pray that as we study, we can come to understand uh, more fully, more completely what your Bible teaches about a topic that is uh, a little bit uh, worrisome, spooky, scary to some people. 
But when you know the truth of your word, you know that you have stability and this is not something to be concerned about. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand what the scripture teaches clearly, that it may comfort us and we can use it to comfort others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, last week we got into 1 Samuel 16 and we finished up the section down through verse 23. And in this section we're introduced to this little problem of an evil spirit that comes upon Saul. And that introduces the problem of demonism. And this is a problem that a lot of people don't know much about. And among Christians, there's a tremendous amount of confusion that takes place simply because uh, people are not in the Word of God. They're not in the text, and they want to base their views on experience. They want to base their views on things and stories and add uh, and and uh, uh, on events that people have told them about rather than on on the word of God so we need to look at what the text says and then form our understanding from what uh, from what the scripture said I, uh, <clears throat> demonism is such a popular topic for scary movies in this country and if you haven't watched any television lately to see some of the promos for upcoming uh, TV shows that will be introduced this fall, yes, there's now going to be The Exorcist, the TV show. And some of you remember when uh, William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist, came out. I, I didn't know anything about it. I was a junior in college when the movie came out. It was Christmas break, and my college roommate, who I'd known from uh, church since we were 12 years old, called me up and said, hey, there's a scary movie I heard about. Let's go see a scary movie. I said, what's it called? The Exorcist. Went, okay. So we went, and it became clear, if you remember the film, it became pretty clear in the opening uh, part what it was going to be about. And we had more fun watching the audience than being entertained by the film because we were a couple of guys who had been heard the Bible all of our lives and we knew what the scriptures taught about demon possession and exorcism and all of these things and so we weren't too concerned about it uh, in terms of something that caused us any fear or anxiety but everybody in that audience just wiggled and fidgeted and jumped out of their skin and all of those things and and so that continues. So I would assume that as we've changed in our culture over the last uh, 30 or 40 years a lot, and people are less and less knowledgeable biblically, and even people who go to a lot of churches are woefully misinformed. In fact, out of the charismatic Pentecostal tradition, there's developed since the early part of the 20th century this whole theology of deliverance ministry. Which, is, which dominates. And if you watch some of the uh, charismatic um, tele-evangelists on TV, you'll get a load of a lot of, of uh, nonsense. And what's interesting, one thing you should see as we go through this material tonight and maybe even next week, is compare what we read in the Scripture to what is presented as demon possession or exorcism in the culture or in churches. And what you should see, if you're familiar with the with the platinum standard 
of the Word of God, then you realize that what we see and what we hear about and what is touted as uh, deliverance or exorcism or demon possession is just a really bad counterfeit copy. And and that's why you have to know the Word of God. Read it over and over and over again every year because the more you read it, the more you understand it, the more it builds in us an understanding of what that benchmark should be of absolute truth. So as we've looked at Samuel, we've seen that there's a shift that takes place in chapter 16 as we shift from the rise of Saul. We've seen his fall, the prophecy of Samuel that the kingdom is taken from him, but he's still the king. And from 16 to 31, we'll see the rise of David. And in chapter 16, in the first uh, uh, 13 verses, there's the focus upon David and his anointing. And we read there that as Samuel anointed him with oil, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And uh, this word indicates, uh, some people translate it rush, but I think it has more of the idea of coming upon him for success. The Spirit of God came upon leaders in Israel, as I pointed out last time, in order to strengthen them and give them the ability to rule or to do some other function related to leadership and administration within the uh, theocracy, the theocratic kingdom of Israel. And again, this is more external. It's not that the, that the Spirit of God came into David. It's not the indwelling of the Spirit like we have in the church age. It is coming upon him. And these prepositions to understand the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament and to understand what's going on with these demons in this story is crucial. Everything hinges on these these prepositions. So as the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David for success, the Spirit of the Lord also exits Saul. It withdraws from Saul and is replaced with this evil spirit. New King James translates it distressing, but it's the Hebrew word ra, which means evil or wicked or bad. And so this evil spirit comes upon uh, Saul and uh, is it's more than just troubling him. He is distressed. He's in panic palace. He is overtaken by extreme fear that virtually incapacitates him for any kind of action. That's the idea there. So much so that even his servants recognize what is going on. They're able to somehow... Uh, recognize that this is not just something within Saul, but there's an external uh, influence. And so they they recognize that perhaps something can soothe him, and they look for someone who is knowledgeable, experienced in playing the, the liar, who can come, and if he does that, then this spirit from God will leave, and he will become well or healed. I changed up the slide here. I looked at it this this morning and thought, well, that doesn't communicate well. So I changed it. It's, it means pleasant or good, something as intended or something healthy. And it doesn't mean the idea of morally good. Sometimes that's translated that way, but it it really has the core meaning of something that is as God intended. So he's restored back to his uh, normal state of mind. And so Saul gives his servants instructions to come, and they uh, look for somebody who excels in playing the liar. And so they tell him about this son of Jesse. So God, in the first part of this chapter, identifies David as the next king. He's anointed by Samuel. And now 
Uh, even though Saul doesn't understand that, God is working through Saul to elevate David, to bring him into the court where he will be going through God's finishing school, uh, learning how to function at a level that is much different from that which he experienced out in the sheepfold. So as he played on the, on the lyre, there's this uh, evil spirit departs from Saul. Now, as we talk about this doctrine, I want to introduce this idea of, of what is demon influence and what is demon possession and understanding, understanding this, um, that demon influence and demon oppression is external. The demon is outside of a person and in some way is influencing through what they think. And that can be done second, through secondary and intermediate means. You can be influenced by television. You can be influenced by film. You can be influenced by your peers, your parents, your professors, uh, teachers, friends, all kinds of people, believers and unbelievers who are operating on non-biblical thinking. Anything that's not biblical is worldly. It's antagonistic to God. And all of us, to some degree, are operating on false thinking, human viewpoint thinking, the devil's own thinking, whenever we are sinning, when we're living according to the sin nature, we are just following in the devil's footsteps in terms of our rationale. We're operating on arrogance, which was the devil's original sin, and we're operating on a hostility and antagonism and rejection of God, because that is exactly what happens once Satan is confronted with his arrogance he becomes antagonistic, hostile toward God, and opposes God. And so this can happen uh, to any one of us. We can become the devil's disciples. Now, in the in, in um, recent study that I've done, I've come across and expanded a lot of material that uh, I developed uh, in my... Um, in the book on spiritual warfare, just in terms of history. And there's a reason for this is because if we're going to look at what the Bible teaches us about demon possession and demon oppression and, and demon uh, influence, then we, to some degree, ought to juxtapose that with, uh, with what was going on in the world. And one of the interesting things is that in Jewish literature, non-biblical literature, extra-biblical literature, there is very little said about demons and about demon possession and about demon influence. That in biblically, the only example that we have of demon, any kind of demonic activity that's related to demon influence or demon possession is this episode episode with, with, uh, with Saul. There are a, there's one other mention during the Old Testament period, let's say the period before Christ, and that's an episode I'll go to in a little while from the apocryphal book of Tobit. Now, Tobit is one of about 11 or 13, depending on what your tradition is, 11 or 13 books that were written uh, that came out of the Jewish community between the close of the Old Testament canon and the birth of Christ. And they were not, never accepted by the Jewish community as having any kind of spiritual authority. However, they were recognized uh, as having some value in teaching about the history and tradition and development of Judaism in the period between 
um, between the close of the Old Testament canon and the New Testament. There's this period of about uh, 400 years when God is silent. And it was during that period that these books were written, so they were uh, assumed to have some value, but they weren't spiritually authoritative. So they were uh, often included with the Septuagint in Septuagint translations. Well, when Jerome, who lives in the uh, uh, 4th century, 4th to 5th century, and he's translating the um, the the, the Hebrew Old Testament and the, and the Greek New Testament into Latin, into the language of the people. That's why it was called the common language. And the um, uh, word for common in Latin is vulgare. So it was called the Vulgate. And, of course, by the time you get into the high Middle Ages, nobody was speaking Latin anymore. And the people in the uh, the people in in the churches couldn't understand anything that was said, so you had a period of about a thousand years when nobody knew what the Bible said because it was in a foreign language that nobody spoke anymore, and, and it was it was all in Latin. So the the apocrypha when 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 Jerome translated the Vulgate, he included the apocrypha, and if you read his preface, he says it's not part of the Word of God, but I'm including it because it gives helpful information. But because it was bound in the same codex as the Word of God, people, I'm, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to how many people would normally read the preface in the books that they read, but it was the same back then. Nobody read the preface, so they just assumed that these books were part of the Bible. And that led to even the priests. That led to a lot of heresy that developed that, was, that made Roman Catholic theology distinctively Roman, Roman Catholic. But um, uh, that's where Tobit comes from. We'll talk about that later. And outside of that, everything else is written after Christ. In other words, what you see historically is almost no mention either in Jewish literature or non-Jewish literature about evil spirits or demons until Jesus comes on the scene. After Jesus came on the scene, then you find that there's a lot of mention of demons and exorcism and things like that. But before Jesus, there's there's nothing like that. There's, there's hardly any mention. I'm, I'm going to give you just some of those examples. One of them is in this book called, in its Latin title, the Liber Antiquitatum Bellicarum, and which was also known as Pseudo-Philo because there was a time when somebody named, uh, took the name of Philo and said he, that, that it was the real Philo who lived about the time of the New Testament that he had written this. And in this book, which was probably written uh, after 150 A.D., so 50 to 75 years after the close of the New Testament canon, this book was written. And in this book, it is talking about the very episode that we're studying in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And so in that book, it's, it's interpreting what happened. Now, by this time, what's happened is they've come to think that, that this episode with Saul is demon possession, and it wasn't demon possession, as I pointed out. It was demon influence because of the the, the kind of of um, uh, prepositions that are there. That the the spirit comes to Saul or upon Saul, but it never says in Saul. So this is what uh, the uh, Liber Antiquatum says: an evil spirit oppressed him. 
And Saul sent and fetched David, and he played a psalm upon his harp in the night. And this is the psalm which he sang unto Saul, that the evil spirit might depart from him. Quote, there were darkness and silence before the world was, and man was made, and after that was the tribe of your spirits made. Now, therefore, be not injurious, whereas thou art a second creation. But if not, then remember hell wherein thou walkest. That's the psalm addressing the demon. And when David sang, sung praises, his book says, the spirit spared Saul. So in the first century, this was thought to be an exorcism. I mean, by the second century, this was thought to be an exorcism when, in fact, uh, it was it was not an exorcism. Uh, so that's that's but that's written a century and a half, or at least a century after the time of Christ. Okay, so the point is that that it's after Christ that you start seeing this kind of of literature. So with that, I want to give a review and summary and a little more detail on the angelic rebellion. How are we to understand? demons and evil spirits, what they can do, what they can't do, how susceptible are we to, as Christians to uh, demon possession or demon influence, and just what are we to do about it? So first of all, we have to understand where demons come from. The angelic rebellion, this is before Genesis 1, or between Genesis 1 and Genesis 1-2, I believe, the angelic rebellion began in eternity past. God had created all of the angels because they came from his hand, because he created each one individually. There's no mom and dad angels. Uh, they don't procreate. There are different kinds, different orders of angels. There's seraphim, there's cherubim, there's uh, the archangels, and then there's rank-and-file angels. Uh, and they all had uh, volition. They all had free will up to a point, and under that free will, there's a test as to whether these angels would obey God or disobey God. And while they had the free exercise of their will, the highest and greatest of these angels, who was called Lucifer, that's a um, that was a English translation of the of the Hebrew, uh, became arrogant and decided he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be worshipped like God. He wanted to be honored like God. He was the greatest of all of the angels. Now, his name, the name Lucifer, which has in the Latin a root meaning of light or light bearer, showing that, that this is part of his essential nature, is really a translation of the Hebrew word Hallel ben Shahar. Hallel ben Shahar, uh, which means the... Uh, shining one, Hillel is shining one, Ben is son of, and Shakar is morning. So it, this was also applied in some sense to the morning star. So this is the this is what his name or title is as it's given in uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. In this slide, what I've given you is the New King James translation on top, which translates it, O Lucifer, son of the morning. And uh, verse uh, 12, as it's translated in the NET Bible, O shining one, son of the dawn. That is a more accurate literal translation. So in English, we've come to think of Lucifer as a proper name for Satan, and really it's just a bad translation of a Hebrew term that refers to him as the shining one or the light bearer. 
Another thing that we know is when this occurred in eternity past, that there was a time when there was the opportunity for angels to pick up, to pick sides and choose sides. And according to Revelation 12, 3 through 4, one third of all the angels. Now, how many angels are there? Well, in the in Revelation says there are myriads upon myriads. That's a lot of angels. That's billions upon billions, maybe. So there's a huge number of angels, and one-third of them uh, followed Satan in his rebellion. And so one-third of them are fallen angels. And really the term fallen angels is a better term uh, for all of them than to call them demons, and I'll get into that in just a minute. Revelation 12, 3 and 4 is talking about a future event that occurs halfway through the tribulation period. Because until that event, Satan and the fallen angels still have access to heaven. We see this in Job 1 and Job 2. We saw it uh, last week in 1 Kings chapter 22 that the angels still come before the throne of God in heaven. They still have access, and they're still part of this angelic convocation that occurs. But halfway through the tribulation, they are cast out of heaven to the earth. And Revelation 12.3 says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on on his head, and this is the seven heads, the ten horns. The ten horns picture the ten kings of the revived Roman Empire. Three of them were were taken over as one. That's why there's seven heads and seven diadems. But it's pictured as the red dragon because Satan is the energizing power behind the Antichrist, who is the ruler of that ten nation confederacy, the revived Roman Empire, that will uh, come up as the power base for Satan in the in the uh, tribulation period. In verse 4, we're told his tail, the tail of the dragon, drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So the stars of heaven is a term that is used consistently in the Old Testament as a metaphorical term to refer to angels. They're not physical stars. It's just a, a, a metaphorical title for them. They were, so he takes a third of the angels of heaven and threw them to the earth. And then the rest of the verse says that the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. Now that is, that's Mary, who's ready to give birth. And this depicts this, this uh, dragon as the one who wants to devour her child, who of course is Christ. So this depicts this, and this warfare that has taken place ever since the fall of Satan. And it is this angelic warfare, this angelic rebellion that shapes and influences all of human history. Now, these fallen angels under point three are collect. These are collectively referred to as fallen angels, although generally some people just lump them in as demons. But I would say that demons is a more restricted term. The word demon or evil spirit is restricted to those who are still able to interact with human history. There are actually different groups, four different groups of fallen angels that are described in the scripture. 
And we have to understand that this is the ultimate enemy that we face. We may think we face certain politicians and certain uh, uh, political philosophies as the enemy. You may think that you face certain individuals in your life as the, uh, as the enemy. But what the Scripture says is that we face somebody that's greater than that. These are simply people who have been duped by the enemy. And so the enemy is not your favorite political party to hate. The enemy is not your favorite uh, presidential candidate to hate. The enemy is not your favorite court judge to hate. The enemy is related to Satan and the demons. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the battle. As we are engaged in this spiritual warfare, this cosmic conflict that isn't with other human beings ultimately, but the, uh, in, uh, the human beings we think we're fighting are simply dupes of, of Satan, that, and he is using their arrogance and their sin natures to try to accomplish his goal of ruling the planet. Now, under point number four, I want to identify the different groups of fallen angels that are mentioned in the Scripture. A lot of people just lump them all together, but we're going to break it out. The first groups identified in Genesis chapter 6 as the sons of God. The sons of God, the Hebrew word is B'nai Ha-Elohim. The word B'nai is the genitive form of the noun Ben, meaning son of. And they're called the sons of God. This is a term that just is a generic term related to all of the angels. Because in Genesis, I mean, in Job 1, when Satan is coming before the throne of God, he's part of a convocation of angels that are all described as the sons of God. And it includes fallen angels as well as holy angels. So this is just a generic term. Now, a sophomoric, probably a freshman error, was made by a a man who's written several years ago, he wrote a systematic theology. He's president of a seminary out in Phoenix. Uh, he is a pr- prominent evangelical scholar, and um, he got involved with the charismatic uh, spinoff of the 70s and 80s called the Vineyard Movement. And I'm just amazed. I've read his systematic theology because it's very popular. A lot of seminary ca- uh, uh, schools are using this today, and it's just tragic that you have someone of that caliber who doesn't look at his Greek or Hebrew text because he doesn't want to uh, uh, believe. He says, he says, sons of God is not a term for angels. And then he cites a passage in uh, De- Deuteronomy that s- talks about the Jews as the sons of God. Wake up, read the Hebrew. In that verse, it says sons of Yahweh doesn't say B'nai Ha'elohim, it says B'nai Ha'yahweh. That's a different term. You know, you're mixing apples and oranges, and you've got a Ph.D. and you're president, president of a seminary, you've been president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and you're supposed to be somebody. And every time I pick up his book and read it, I always catch him in exegetical errors for his theology, which is, which is really tragic. What we have in Genesis chapter 6 is a statement that there were giants on the earth in those days. This is before Noah's flood. And also afterward, when the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, 
came into the daughters of men. And so this is indicating some sort of sexual relationship because the product is children. Now you may say, well, I thought you said over in Matthew 22 that angels don't marry or are given in marriage. That's right. They have immaterial bodies. But we see various examples in Scripture where these immaterial angels are able to take on the form and functions. They can eat food, they sleep, they do other bodily functions where... Uh, obviously they're able to procreate and so this is an attempt to destroy the genetic purity of the human race now there's a couple of other positions that are taken to identify the sons of god one says that they're just the descendants of seth and the i mean the sons of god are the um, are the evil ones so they're the descendants of cain and the daughters of men are the descendants of seth but in one of there's several reasons that's not right one is that the term sons of God, Beneha Elohim, here and in Job, the two oldest books in the Old Testament, always refer to all the angels. The other is that uh, if, if this is referring to where the sons of God are the Canaanites and the daughters of men are the Sethites, then you, they're only intermarrying in one direction. It's only male Canaanites and female Sethites. That's a problem. Uh, why wouldn't you have intermarriage going in the other direction? It doesn't make sense. Third reason is it fails to understand how large the population was before the flood. When you have 10 or 11 generations living at the same time, then you have a rapid multiplication of the of the population. So if you just had very conservatively, Henry Morris and some others have worked out all of these all of these figures, that if you have conservatively each family having four children. Now when you're living to be 900 years of age and your years of fertility are probably 150 or 200 years, you're, you're probably having more than four children. But conservatively speaking, if you just have four children, and all of those children live to be 850 to 950 years of age, then after the period of time from Adam to Noah, you would have a worldwide population of at least two and a half to three billion. Now, if they were having seven, eight, or ten children, then you could have a worldwide population at the time of the flood of five or six or seven billion. It was enormous. So the idea that this is just talking about one segment of the population intermarrying with another segment of the population just can't hold water. And then the most obscure view is one that this idea of the sons of God refers to ancient despots or tyrants. And there's a lot of, it, it doesn't fit lexically. There's no word usage to support it. It falls apart. The problem is is that there is an introduction of a quality of evil into the human race that means that God has to totally destroy the human race in order to start over. There is a genetic uh, infiltration that occurs here to prevent the coming of the Messiah as the seed of the woman. That's the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. So he has to be truly human. If you have an angelic infiltration, you're changing the the the, the makeup of the um, of the human DNA, and so now you're going to have a problem producing a God-man Savior. 
It's further supported by New Testament passages. Jude 6 and 7 talks about a group of angels who did not keep their proper domain. They didn't stay at the place that God created for them. They left their own abode. That would be heaven. And, um, and because of that, he's reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So this segment of fallen angels are imprisoned because they did something that's involved, that, that's described as leaving their original abode. But further than that, the sin of those angels is compared to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah. So what kind of sin did Sodom and Gomorrah have? It was a sexual sin. So that's the point of comparison. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, these what? These angels. So Sodom and Gomorrah are viewed as imitating the sin of these angels. So if their sin was a sexual sin, so was that of these angels. Uh, having And what? how's that described? They gave themselves over to sexual immorality. They went after strange flesh or flesh of a different kind. There's a difference between angels and humans. And so this is a affirmation of, of the uh, interpretation of sons of God in Genesis 6-4. And it's also stated in 1 Peter 3-19, talking about Jesus, that after the crucifixion, uh, before the resurrection, he went and preached or proclaimed his victory over sin. He proclaimed his victory to the spirits. That's the angels or demons, actually. Uh, it's just pneuma, meaning spirits, because that's their essential nature, spirit beings in prison. And these are further described as those who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So these imprisoned angels are identified as having committed some sin in 1 Peter 3.20 that occurred at the time of Noah. So when you compare 1 Peter 3.20 with uh, Jude and then with Genesis, it becomes clear that that is the only viable interpretation of Genesis 6.4. That's the first group of demons. They are confined under chains of darkness in Tartarus. Then you have another group, a demon army that is currently confined to the abyss. This is where Satan will be cast when he is defeated at the Battle of Armageddon. He is thrown and, ch and chained in the abyss. But in Revelation 9, 1 through 11, as part of the fifth trumpet judgment, there is a demon army that's released. And remember, these are the ones that have uh, t tails like scorpions, and they're released upon uh, the human race, and their sting is extremely painful, creates all kinds of, of pain and suffering, but it doesn't kill people. They just wish they were dead. Then you have a, th a third demon army that is currently being held for that time uh, in under the Euphrates. And this is an army of 200 million that are, in, that are kept uh, in reserve until the midpoint of the tribulation or late in the second half of the tribulation, and then they are going to be released. It's not 200 million uh, red Chinese, which is what Hal Lindsey did with it, it's 200 million angels, demons, 
that are going to be released as part of the sixth uh, trumpet judgment. And this actually occurs uh, prior to the midpoint of the tribulation, not after I misspoke a minute ago. So in Revelation 9.14, we read, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army, so these uh, four angels must be the commanders, and the number of the army of the horsemen that's released is 200 million. That's a lot of angels. A lot of demons. And then there's this fourth group of demons who are those who are alive and well and were involved in these uh, different episodes of First Samuel 16 and the episodes at the time of Christ where you have demon possession. Now on Sunday, I just thought I'd bring this slide back in today to remind you, we talked about Sheol or Hades and it had different compartments, Abraham's bosom where uh, the Old Testament believers went when they died, before the cross, you have uh, this impassable barrier and torments, and that's where the unbelievers went. And then there's uh, Tartarus, which is where these uh, one group of angels are bound in chains. Then you also have the abyss, but that's not part of Hades or Sheol. Then, after the cross, paradise is moved to heaven. So all that is left is torments for the unbelievers and then also uh, Tartarus where those uh, fallen angels are left. Now, so that identifies who we're talking about. When we're talking about demons, we're talking about that fourth group that is not imprisoned. They are not part of the, that uh, group of demons that's released in the fifth, uh, the fifth trumpet or the 200 million demon army in the sixth trumpet. Uh, so they are that that fourth group of demons. They're responsible for spreading the thinking of Satan. All the human viewpoint philosophies, all of the uh, human religions, all of this is part of demonic influence. It's the thinking of Satan. Uh, remember, friendship with the world is hostility to God in, in James chapter th- 3. So all of this is just emphasizing that that. When we succumb to thinking like Satan thinks, the thinking of the world, that that's what demonic thinking is. It's earthly, it is demonic, and it's sensual, James says. So demon influence is when a person is thinking according to the devil's thinking, according to the world system. If you're an existentialist, you're influenced by demonism. If you're a progressive a social justice person, you're influenced by demonism. If you are a crony capitalist, you are influenced by demonism. If you are a Darwinian evolutionist, you are influenced by demonism. If you are a Freudian, you are influenced by demonism. Those are all demonic ideas. You may say, well, there's some good stuff there. Well, guess what? There's probably some truth in the Bhagavad Gita and in the sayings of Confucius and in the Quran. But I'm not going to recommend that you read it. There's prob- there's protein. In fact, if you analyze the venom in rattlesnakes, it's all protein. Protein's good for you. You want to drink some? I don't think so. But that's what people are doing when they succumb to what is comfortable in terms of human viewpoint is they're basically drinking poison. 
and thinking it won't impact them. So demon influence is the devil's thinking. It's described in the Bible as worldliness. And whenever a Christian or a non-Christian thinks like the world instead of like the Bible, then they're thinking according to the devil's system, and that's demon influence. Now, that's putting it in a very stark, harsh term, but that's what it is. It's not, there's no neutrality in the Bible. You're either thinking like God or you're not. And friendship with the world is enmity or antagonism or hatred toward God. That doesn't leave room for some sort of nice little comfortable uh, place of neutrality in, in between. Demon possession, on the other hand, is only for unbelievers. Demon influence affects believers as well as unbelievers. But demon possession is different. It involves the invasion of the body by a, by a, um, uh, of a non-Christian by a demon or an evil spirit or more that can take control of the body. They don't ultimately override the volition of the individual, but they prevent it from functioning in terms of its material or physical production. So you want to, like the demoniac in the, in the tombs, he can't go where he wants to go or do what he wants to do, but as a person, that soul that is being uh, prevented from functioning by the, by the demons is still able to function spiritually toward God and can uh, exercise positive volition toward God. And that, I believe, is the only way that a demon-possessed person can ultimately be, be truly freed from a demon is when they are turning to God to deliver them and they trust in Christ as their Savior. Then they will be delivered from, by a demon. So what we see is that under demon possession, the demon controls the the I said the believers, um, the unbelievers, bad typo there, the unbelievers' physical actions from a position within the unbelievers. See, I did it twice. We got to correct that, Barb. Okay, um, that's demon possession. Saul was not demon possessed. There's no evil spirit inside the demon. Now, when we get into the New Testament, under point number seven that there are various warnings about demon influence. We're again and again warned as believers not to come under the influence of the world's thinking or demonic thinking. One form of this was idolatry. Any kind of false religion is idolatry, even if it's some sort of, of a mind or mental uh, thing. If you're worshiping uh, intellectualism, if you're worshiping Darwin, Darwinism, if you're, if you're an existentialist, if you're a, a Freudian psychologist, then, then you're worshiping an immaterial idol of the mind. And that's just as dangerous as worshiping an idol made out of wood or stone or metal. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.20 that sacrificing to idols is sacrificing to demons. So when you go to the Antiquities Museum, and you see these idols of the Baal and the Ashtaroth and all of these others, that those were probably at one time uh, empowered by a demon. When you sacrifice to them, Paul says, you're really sacrificing a demon. There's a demon behind that idol. There's a demon behind that statue of, of, of Athena. 
Th th those are demonically produced religions. Now, there have been some people who really cater to these superstition and fears of people, and they say, oh, but if you go to some place like India and you buy a little Buddha and you bring it home, you're bringing a demon with it, and you better watch out because now you brought a demon into your house. Uh, I thought that, that demons, like Satan, freely walks to and fro upon the face of the earth, First Peter chapter 5, seeking whom he may devour. He, you know, the demons can go in and out of wherever we are all the time. If God opened our eyes where we could see the angels and the, and the fallen angels, we'd probably be surprised how many times we're surrounded by demons and fallen angels. So I don't have to go bring an idol back from some foreign country in order to bring a demon into my house. Okay, that's just superstitious nonsense, and it's not biblical. 1 Timothy 4, one warns us about deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, that in the end times people will pay attention to that. Now, we're in the end times ever since the beginning of the church age. And doctrines of demons has caused many people to be distracted and deceived throughout the church age, including many believers. I heard about a, uh, a, a man who, as a child, grew up. He went to the church where I grew up. He went to the camp where I grew up. He uh, he he went to uh, a church up in. Uh, he went to Texas Tech. He went to a very solid uh, Bible teaching church in Texas Tech. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Not the boy, but you know the church. Uh, all of that. Later, went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, he posted on his Facebook page within the last month that he has renounced Christ and converted to Judaism. And I'm hearing stories like this again and again and again uh, about people who go to uh, Greek Orthodoxy and claim it's free grace. They, nobody's known that for a thousand years or more. How can you say if you have a brain in your head that that's free grace? But that's what you hear. They, are, they are, have succumbed to the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen through 15 warns of the deceptive appearance of, of, of Satan's ministers, that they appear as servants of righteousness. So the only way you can get past the counterfeit is to know what the truth is. And the only way you can know what the truth is is to hide the Word of God in your soul. You need to read it and read it and know it and know it and learn it so that you can spot the counterfeits. And James 3.13 through 15 identifies human viewpoint with worldly wisdom. It's sensual, it's earthly, it's natural, it's soulish. James 3.13 through 15. Now when we get into the Gospels, everybody wants to go to the Gospels and say, well, we, the Bible says we're supposed to be like Jesus. Jesus cast out demons, therefore we should cast out demons. How's that for a syllogism? Well, each one, the, both the premise, major premise and minor premise, have fallacies in them. One, we are, Jesus cast out demons, but he did so for a reason and a purpose, because as he entered into human history as the God-man Messiah that was promised and prophesied from the Old Testament, it was realized by the demons that this is the focal point of the whole angelic rebellion. And it is do or die. They're they're in a, you know, they're in a final um, 
you know, sudden death playoff, and whoever wins this wins the whole thing, and whoever loses loses. And so they come out in force at the time that Jesus is walking on the earth. As I said, you don't. You, the only mention of a demon in the Old Testament is Saul. The only mention in Jewish literature, aside from that, is Tobit. You just this just isn't emphasized. It's not viewed as a major issue or problem uh, in the in the Old Testament. And suddenly, when you get into the New Testament, Jesus is confronted by demons. So there are three general statements about Jesus casting out demons. In Matthew 4.24, this is early in his ministry, after he first begins his ministry and he's healing people, and it just says they brought to him all who were ill, uh, taken with various diseases and pains, and along with that, demoniacs, those who are demon-possessed, epileptics, See, they record, they categorize these. These are not saying these are synonymous, that, that diseases and demons and epileptics and parale- that, that those who are paralyzed, that these are synonymous terms. These are categorically different terms. So the Bible recognizes that somebody that's demon-possessed is not sick. They're not suffering from some sort of psychosis. They're not suffering from some sort of mental illness. They are demon-possessed. And that's different from somebody who was uh, an epileptic, although the term for that was uh, sometimes somebody affected by the moon, uh, but that wasn't necessarily literal, but also those who are paralyzed. And Jesus heals them all. He is showing that as the creator God, he has control over the spirit world, and he has control over diseases because he is the the God-man. A second statement is found in Matthew 8:16 with parallels in Mark 129 to 34 and Luke 4:38 to 41 and it says that when evening had come they brought to him many who were demon possessed. I've always found it odd that when you go through the Old Testament there's just this absence of anything related to demon possession all of a sudden you get into the gospels and it's like there's an explosion and it's everywhere, but you don't even find it mentioned that much in extra-biblical or non-Jewish literature. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. Now, that's important. How did he cure their, disease, their demon possession? He cast out the demon. As we'll see, that's the Greek word ekbalo. It is not the Greek word exorkizo. Exorcizo is where we get our word exorcism. The only exorcists mentioned in the Bible are the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish exorcist. Exorcism is what the magicians, the charlatans, uh, try to do to relieve people of this uh, perceived problem. But it's not what Jesus or his disciples or the apostles did. They cast out a demon. Those words are very important. And casting out means that something had to be in something before it could come out of something. So that helps us understand what demon possession is. And then the third general statement is Luke 7.21. At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. And so these are just broad general statements of what Jesus did to many people. So it indicates that there were numerous people who had a a problem with demon possession. Then in the next point, there are eight specific incidents 
which are described in the New Testament. I want to close here because once we get into this, we have to start analyzing what some of these are so we can come to some firm exegetical conclusions about what the Bible teaches. So I'll wait and come back to point nine uh, next Tuesday night. Now, all of this is designed to help us understand what is going on in these passages in 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 19, where this evil spirit comes upon Saul and, and what the dynamics are there and how that relates to understanding demon possession. But the cure, cure for everything, ultimately is the power of God. God created the angels. He created all of them, including those who would rebel against him and be fallen, and he gave them the powers that they have, but their powers are nothing compared to his. As John says in First John, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. As believers, we have absolutely nothing to fear and nothing to worry about when it comes to Satan and when it comes to the demons, unless we're out of fellowship, we're operating on our sin nature, and we're, we're soaking up human viewpoint thinking and living like unbelievers, living like the devil, living in rebellion against God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your greatness, your goodness, to be reminded that, that volition operated in, among the angels it led to consequences when they rebelled against you. Uh, volition, free will, was operational in the Garden of Eden, and as Adam and Eve were deceived by uh, the serpent who was Satan, it led to horrible consequences in human history. Demon influence leads to horrible consequences in our lives and in human history, and the only solution is your grace and your word, and that we learn to walk by the Spirit because he is greater than he that is in the world. And we pray that we will be able to do that and focus on walking by the Spirit and living for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.